Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. there and welcome to the Reform Journal podcast. I'm Jennifer Holberg. I chair the English department at Calvin University where I've taught since 1998. I also co-direct the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing and for many years I've been one of the writers for the Reform Journal's blog. More importantly, I'm delighted to spend these next minutes with the extraordinary Makoto Fujimura, a leading contemporary artist whose process-driven refractive slow art has been described by David Brooks of the New York Times as a small rebellion against the quickening of time. A presidential nominee to the National Council on the Arts from 2003 to 2009, Mr. Fujimura served as an international advocate for the arts, speaking with decision makers and advising governmental policies on the art. In 2014, the American Academy of Religion named Mr. Fujimura as its 2014 Religion and Arts Award recipient. He has had numerous museum exhibition and exhibits, and I hope that after you've listened to this podcast, that you'll go and seek out his amazing work at his website, makotofujimura.com. Educated biculturally between the US and Japan, Mr. Fujimura graduated from Bucknell University in 1983 and received an MFA from Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music with a Japanese governmental scholarship. His thesis painting was purchased by the university and he was invited to study in the Japanese painting doctoral program. For our purposes today, we're gonna to focus on his writing, particularly his latest book called Art and Faith. Or are you saying art plus faith? There's a plus side, but way, it's in, is it art plus? plus. <laughs> uh, anyway, Mr. Fujimura has authored four books. This latest one, Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making, came out from Yale University Press last year, and it is a wonder. Christian Wyman, another poet that you must know if you do not, has called it a tonic for our at atomized time, and I think that's really true. It's such an important uh, and provocative publication, and I'm really looking forward to ha having you listeners uh, know more about this, I think, important work. Now, I'll end this introduction by saying that when I lived in Japan in the 1980s and I would go to my violin lesson, I would begin each time by saying to my teacher, Onegashimasu sensei, <laughs> which means I am ready to be instructed. And I felt like that is very appropriate for today and for the wisdom I think we're going to learn from you in this, these next couple of minutes. So welcome to the Reform Journal podcast. Thank you. Kochirakoso. Yoroshikori. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just dive right into art and faith. In art and faith, you bring together two of my favorite things, Kintsugi and the siblings of Bethany. But uh, before we talk about those elements in particular, I wonder if you can just help people understand the bigger question about what you mean when you advocate for in this book for a theology of making. And, yes. and maybe especially as it relates to your own practice, first just this idea and then how this how it plays out in your art. Absolutely. This book and what I call Theology of Making is my life work. I, I began to write this book without even knowing that I was writing a book a long time ago, even as back as I would say 30 years ago when I was a student, graduate student in Japan. 
I began to journey with the Bible in far more intimate ways than I did as an undergrad at Bucknell and began to be drawn by words of Christ in particular and some of the Psalms. And I resonated deeply with these words and, and then I didn't realize that I had become a Christian, <laughs> but uh, it took me about a year to wrestle against that idea. But I, in, in fact, I was a follower of Christ. I, I understood what Jesus was speaking about and his, his sacrifice for me. And I came to this understanding of salvific understanding that the Bible was speaking of. And so I, I read the Bibles cover to cover, but all or nothing kind of a person. So I dove right in and started rereading it again. But then I realized there was a gap perhaps between how I read the Bible and when I, I was attending a missionary church and what people would speak about didn't disagree, but it, it missed a lot of what I saw. And the Bible begins with creation and this creator God who didn't have to create, but created out of love, in gratuitous love. And so love exudes into all of creation. And that was revelatory for me to know that I didn't have to be at the center of, you know, my creation, but that there was this beautiful excess to all that was there uh, in the universe. And I, that there was meaning behind those things that even human beings don't see, or I moved the focus away from myself, which was a real gift. And but I began to see God as the artist, the creator. And as I note in the book, I now really believe that God is the only artist who certainly created out of ex nihilo, out of nothing, but, but also it, it created a notion about creativity and imagination, which is an astonishing reality for human beings to be not just homo sapiens, but homo faber and that we are invited into this dance with this creator God who doesn't really need us, but loves us and wants to dance with us and wants to see us create. And now all of that is, is in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. <laughs> and I, I go to my church and I excited the, this brand new believer talk about Adam naming the animals, and then later on in Exodus 31, Bezalel and Ohoriab creating the ark of the tabernacle, one and a half cubits by two and a half cubits. I know exactly those dimensions, even though they somewhat of a human measurement, they measured the, the leader's arm to determine the cubits. So I speak about all these things at church, and people are like puzzled. <laughs> And tell me they never really read that part. They skipped that part because what is a cubit? Then nobody seemed to have the same kind of reaction that I have. So I, I kept those things to myself. I wrote them down. I, I began to reflect on them as somewhat my private journey for years. And I have this book is actually only one third of what I, I wrote out because there's so many notations directly from my direct encounter with the Holy Scriptures, and I, I, I was just simply responding. And I make the case that the Bible is, in fact, 
uh, a book about making and first making is obviously done by God and we are responding God's children and as we do our part it's not that God needs any of us to do that but God is inviting us to in fact co-create into this new creation and that that is the theology of making because what is central of our knowledge of God is that God makes and we make <laughs> in response and it, without that part, I argue that without that somatic knowledge, let's say, of us attempting to make, and as I know, I know as an artist that I fail a lot when you try to make anything, and without that kind of repeated attempt to overcome deficiencies or whatnot, even in our brokenness, as you mentioned, Kintsugi, that those fractures are important to God to honor and that we need to honor that in our making mm -hmm. and theology of making is really about our journey of discovering God through the making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought it was so interesting in the book that you not only pointed out all of those or some of the instances of making like the tabernacle, et cetera, yes. but even that the Bible goes so far to record those men's names that yes. we actually know the names of those artists. I was really I, that really struck me while I was thinking that that art is not, and I think that's one of the interesting things I found with this theology of making is it really moves us out of the abstract into the particular, right? That God loves us particularly and really loves our particular kinds of work too. And that I think for reform people, since this is for the Reform Journal podcast, who yes. are often so prone to being the, a theology of thinking, I think that uh, theology of making is so maybe even uncomfortable for people who think all I have to do is have the right thoughts. But I loved how you talked about, and even in your answer, this opening comment where you were talking about failure, all the artists I know talk a lot about trying and failing as part of a really important process that you just know as an artist that that's what you're going to do, as opposed to Christians who sometimes think failure is somehow a a black marker. So I love that notion of particularity and also your sense of kind of radical generosity. That seems really important to, to this theology yeah. too, doesn't it? And especially for a reformed perspective, we are making, you, you have to have presupposition here, a deity of God or God who, who doesn't need us or creation. And you posit that perspective and leave ourselves out of it, let's say, and this way of understanding God's language, which, which is making. Genesis is all about God revealing himself to us through his generosity and making, and how even in Eden, before the fall, that Adam was given this stewardship responsibilities. Talk a little bit about the word dominion mm -hmm. being a little bit of a biased word. It's not wrong to translate it that way, but there is, it's, it, to me, it's about stewardship and it's this responsibility mm -hmm. that we have toward this notion of pre-existing. I think reform theology is critical here because you, you, you really have to understand that if we didn't have this presuppositional uh, way of assuming God to be pre-existent, then we, we don't even understand what it, how to ask that question. So behind the question is this reality. And so if we are steamed in reform theology, as I am, 
you, you begin to appreciate that as an entry into this theology making as well. I think too, the other interesting parallel, I think that you spend quite a bit of time, especially in the opening bits of the book, is this idea that it's making, not fixing. Yes. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could unpack that for the right. listeners. So, I, I think that's really key to what you're saying. You have that very pithy plumbing theology yes. that I that, that's now stayed with me. But yeah, talk a little bit about that kind of difference between making and, and fixing. I use the term plumbing theology, and I, I I say in the book that oftentimes I hear a sermon. And I, I say that's plumbing theology. <laughs> it's fixing the world that is broken and getting it, us back, restoring us and bringing us into consummation. But the, the assumption there, a huge assumption, is that we are somehow perfected into a pre-existing state. As if, preacher may not say that, but we're going back to Eden in some way. And, and that, that's not the direction that we're going. We're going toward the garden city of new creation, yeah. New Jerusalem. And I add to that, that if all Christ came to do was save us so we can go to heaven and to restore the right relationship with God, if, and that's all true, and that is the heart of the gospel. But the entirety of scripture tells us that was in relationship to God creating, you know, the world and us in the first place in love. And then Jesus' incarnation is, he didn't come just to fix us. He came to be with us in our brokenness. Um, and he was broken himself and not from sin but because of us so that it creates a entirely new outcome uh, that that is more than plumbing right plumbing is some you know a pipe broken being fixed now i heard from some plumbers <laughs> and i'm happy to say that they resonated with when i said there might be like kintsugi plumbers out there like People, real good plumbers, they don't just fix. I just worked on here and this guy came in and he said, there's a little hole in, in this pipe and he could have just fixed it and left. But he said, you know what? I'm going to test the water because it's causing this brand new pipe to create this little hole. And because I want to make sure that rest of your piping is not going to have the same problem. Now that's that to me is more than fixing. He he actually cared about his own doing so that and he cared about me and my home to say, I'm gonna go out of my way to make sure that your water is the right softness or whatever. And so in reality, a good plumber is far more than just plumbing. And in the same way, even if the gospel is all about restoring us to a relationship with God, but love is more than that. And when you think about love, whether it be dating or marriages or children or family or friendships, it goes far beyond the utilitarian pragmatic needs. And how much more is God wanting us as God's children to be exuberant in our response. And I talk about, of course, Mary and Bethany, whose response was quite outstanding. But but that that to me is, is very important. So instead of plumbing theology, theology of making is in an assumption, again, of God's abundance. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. in the universe, even if we're faced with ground zeros, a, a scarcity reality in front of us, Darwinian survival game, somehow God, through the Bible, gives us a picture, a vista of the new beyond that to, to not just restore what is in front of us that's devastated and broken, but somehow create something new out of that. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect time for us to, to remind people what Kintsuki Act actually is, right. because I just find it such, uh, from the time I learned about it a long time ago, it just really makes that the, those New Testament verses about the new creation just make so much more sense to me because I'm not totally new. I'm still, but anyway, why don't you explain to folks what, yeah, what so, that technique is? And then, and then right. we've been talking a little bit about it, but maybe connect yeah. it again for folks. Yeah. So I, I have one here to show oh, you, you know, in a podcast this, you can't see this, but it's a broken teaware. And we started a thing called Kintsugi Academy. I work with a Kintsugi master. Kin is gold and Tsugi means to mend. But Tsugi also, as you may know, also has um, another meaning, which is to pass it down to the next generation. So Tsugu means to patch something or uh, to mend, but it's also done gratuitously into the uh, so that it, this can be a gift uh, to future generations. And this one was done by a friend of mine in one of our workshops, and she's a designer. And she not only mended this part, which is, was cracked and filled it with Japan lacquer and, and then touched it up with gold, but she embellished it. This squiggle here right next to it, which, which looks like thunder or some kind of cloud pattern. And therefore, this is more valuable than the original because it's been broken and restored and created into a new creation. And that's, as I did, it's a profound theological reality flowing out of Japanese aesthetic of tea, 16th century Senorikyu and beyond has refined this notion of what people may call wabi-sabi, this, you know, idea that something that is broken is precious precisely because it's broken. Something that's worn because you love this uh, iPhone or wallet and it, it shows the wear and tear that is more um, valuable than the new object. And plus, as I note in the book, this is post-resurrection reality. It's Jesus the greatest astonishing reality of Jesus's post-resurrection appearance is that, first of all, he stays human. <laughs> he could be anything, and he stays human. And second of all, he is well wounded human. That is so radical. And I, I don't hear this preached often. We talk about the resurrection power. We talk about Easter, again, restoration. But walking into new creation is this wounded human being leading us so what does that mean for our wounds and our realities that we bring into the church that we are broken and i think it flips the convention especially american reality of you go to church to be perfect to be restored and perfect and i think this theology kintsugi theology would say uh, the, no beautiful because you're broken 
And the pieces can be fit together in a congregation, in the body of Christ, that we are meant to be together, not to just to be broken together, but to create something new through that. Just as Esther, my friend, the designer did, there's more than just mending it. So you can use the board again. This is an opportunity for new creation. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think on our part that, and especially in an American culture where showing your wounds, you're always supposed to be, that's not supposed to be seen as opposed to a consuming aesthetic, which is completely like they are the most beautiful part is the places that were broken. They're the parts that have gold around them now. And, And I love that idea that God can take that and really turn that into the golden parts of your life that you never get rid of them either though. You never are the first thing. But also your earlier idea about co-making, that we're co-makers with God or that we participate with God, that someone made that bowl whenever that, and now a second maker comes along and there's this sense too of that. And I think too of the ideas, as you were saying, generationally, that part of that verse in Psalms about how we'll tell the story from generation to generation. And that's part of our job. And that here's an embodiment of that in this cup. I I just, I think everyone should really think a lot, meditate on this idea, because it is, I think, so, so profound on so many different levels. Uh, let's turn though and talk about our friends at Bethany because like you I'm obsessed with them Mary Martha's more my girl than Mary I have to say so I was I tried hard with the book on Mary who is indeed this model of generosity but one of the phrases you use at the end of the book is that you want to talk about a Lazarus culture so maybe unpack that for for us a little bit it's about sisters and a brother and sisters who are very they are very close all of them to Jesus and Lazarus is sick, and in the beginning of John 11, you are told that Jesus intentionally delayed his coming to Bethany and telling his disciples that Lazarus will fall asleep, and, and he is delaying to show forth the glory of God, and everybody is puzzled by this, and meanwhile, Martha and Mary are stricken with this reality of watching their beloved brother die in front of them. And then even more so is they knew that Jesus, and he could have done something about it. (laughs) This miracle worker who could have easily come and healed, which they expected and wanted and desired, didn't happen. And so they're both puzzled, but puzzled in a different way. And I love this passage, thinking about Martha and Mary, because both of them grown into this moment, right? So Martha, who is the CEO of the family, she's organizing a house party for Jesus all the time. She just was hosted by, basically by Martha. Mary sat and listened to <laughs> Jesus's message taking it all in. And we remember in Luke that Martha was quite upset about Mary not helping. And by this time, though, Martha is different. She understands what Jesus came to do and, and her role in all this, that she is an activist. And that so she goes to meet Jesus halfway. Mary stays behind, angry and upset and weeping. And, and Martha is the one that asks the questions that we all have. Why did you come late? If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus goes to ex- have this full explanation. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life, and, and we believe that. And, and Martha gives the acknowledgement, which, which is such a beautiful acknowledgement of a very analytical person who is, is yet to see, but in faith, 
what she is saying, but she can think through and acknowledge that, right? And say, yes, I do believe that. But then what about my brother? And, but what's beautiful about this is instead of keep asking Jesus why and why, she goes to fetch her sister. So she understands that her sister has a grasp of something intuitive that she doesn't. So me being an artist, I, I, I just get so moved thinking about this because Martha didn't have to do anything. And Jesus didn't have to go see Mary. Jesus skipped that part. John 11, 35, the most important passage in the entire Bible for me, Jesus wept two words. It doesn't have to happen. It is utterly unnecessary. Again, that overabundance, yeah. that graciousness. Echoes creation in my understanding of that passage. And Jesus could have just saw Mary angry and upset, taken her by the hand, dragged her to Lazarus's grave, yeah. leaves Lazarus, the end of the story. But he doesn't do that. So what is John 11 doing? He, he actually leaves everything around him, comes to a full stop. But eternity, I think, stopped at that moment when Jesus met Mary's eyes and realized that the anger and the sorrow, her tears were justified. Mm -hmm. And that he, as fully human uh, friend, is also someone who is troubled and upset and angry at death itself. And so he stops, right? <laughs> this moment where the Son of God, the Word of God, says nothing <laughs> and weeps. And that wasteful time, let's say, if you're thinking about pragmatics, is like completely wasteful. There's no purpose for this. But that is the moment in eternity where I think everything turned. I, I think Mary understood, intuited that the weighty consequence of what that, those tears of Jesus meant for him. So she would respond extravagantly by bringing her nod, the wedding nod that she was saving up. Mm -hmm. Probably needed Martha's permission to do that. So these two sisters, and literally when they meet Jesus, they say exactly word for the same thing. Lord, only if you have been here, my brother would not have died. And it, it's such a beautiful picture of a triad. And I talk about Lazarus culture because Lazarus doesn't have a line. He doesn't say anything. He's just sit, sitting with Jesus after his temporary resurrection. He's just chitting with Jesus. He's hey, I, I may have FBI most wanted sign on my back yeah. and everybody wants to get me and kill me. I don't care. I was dead. I, I don't need anything else. I just need to be with Jesus. Right. That's all I know. Very simple, very reposed, very confident. And I realized one Easter when I was reflecting on this that, you know what, we know more about the resurrection physical resurrection of Jesus than Lazarus did at that moment. Yeah. So why are we so anxious? Mm -hmm. <laughs> why are we so troubled? And why do we want to fix the world when we could just be hanging out with Jesus, chilling with Jesus, and knowing that it's, it's Christ's presence now, the Holy Spirit, we have access to the throne, the Holy of Holies, and we don't have to worry because God is going to take care of things. And it just feels like things are churning and the world is on fire. But 
no, we know something that Lazarus didn't even know then. Yeah. And we can be confident in that. Yeah. And I just think they're such a cool family in that they are all so different. And yet Jesus is yeah. friends with every single one of them. He Definitely. receives them in the way they need to be received. Yeah. He's, yeah. He has the long theological discussion with Martha. Yes. He has the emotional moment with Mary. Yeah. Like yeah. you say, he doesn't even need words with Lazarus. They can just hang <laughs> out. But it's partly because I think they, the worst thing for them has happened, right? The death of their, as you said, their beloved brother. And yet they each come to learn. And in that final scene with them, when Mary is doing her artistic act of her performance art, as it were, her, her showing that extravagance, there's that lovely line. And when Lazarus, as you say, is just chilling. And then you have that lo lovely line, Martha also served. It's yes. in that final oh, yes. scene, they're all in the right spot. Yeah. And they've all come to terms in their kind of arc yeah. with Jesus yeah. where they're where they all are satisfied, where they're all doing the work they need to be doing. And they're having this moment that I think is uh, it's I think it's important that it's a, a feast, right? That it's a, a kind of uh, you talk about this in a uh, thing I've taught in my senior seminar a long time, your Bellhaven commencement speech, right? Okay. The aroma of yeah. the new that we get these little pictures. And I feel yes. like that's a tiny little picture of the final feast we'll be at with this little with the family of God. Here, the family of the Bethany people. Anyway, I just, I'm very, like you, I'm very moved by that. And I love in the book, I hope when, when the rest of you who are listening read the book, I think you'll really be really get some new insights into these siblings. I think yes, really. The most important part, you know, I spent three chapters on that. Yeah. No. Yeah, for sure. And I love, like you were saying, how you're talking about the tears and yeah. how in some ways tears are also gratuitous and yet so essential to the kind of theology you're talking about. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wondered if you, in this idea of, of the theology of making, I wonder what you would say or how we might encourage people who can't imagine themselves as a maker. Yeah, yeah. First of all, everybody is a maker. I, I, they may not be a professional artist, but they cook, they garden, they raise children, they create communities. They, they, so it, I, I don't think it's, it would be too difficult to prove that everybody's a maker of some sort. But also we are creatures of the imagination. And that's a hard one to understand perhaps for some people why I don't imaginative or in that sense. But sometimes when I teach uh, at a Sunday school in my church, I, I begin by saying, between the time you left your home and drove to this church when we could, did you worry about something and created something that doesn't exist because you're fearful or because you're anxious. And if you're honest, all the hands go up. And, and I say that proves that you're a creature of imagination. We, we are built this way to have this imaginative capacity to create the future. And if we don't create out of love, we will create out of fear. Mm -hmm. And that's how we are built. And even if you're not an artist, we have this stewardship responsibility over what is, we call it imagination, but the Bible calls it the heart, the heart, of the, the eyes of the heart. That, that word is, according to my dear colleague, Dr. Ellen Davis of Duke, she says the translation, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, for the heart is what we call imagination. Mm -hmm. So sanctified imagination is sanctified heart. Mm -hmm. 
And if we understand that and the necessity of that and the incredible responsibility we have as community of God to do that, to use imagination toward the new, out of love, for love, you know, we will be succumbed by, you know, consuming fear and filled with anxiety and creating things that perhaps doesn't exist. I think that's so true in terms of the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that are normative, the images, all of those things I think are so important for us as thinking as disciples. How do you see that? Are, are there things, I know you and I both really love the four quartets. You did a whole uh, project on that. Are there things that you think are must reads or art you think people should seek out besides your own, of course, and we want everyone to go. And Literature is so important because of what you said. It is about stories and, and poetry included. It is about creating, crafting with words, new reality. And Eliot is, is so wonderful because in Four Cortez, which was his final poem, he never wrote another poem after that, even though he lived close to 20 years, I think, after he wrote this masterpiece. But he is so open about his own failures in it. And the failures of language to capture transcendence, kind of this looping reality. And yet, by using words, he creates music that move beyond time itself, which is absolutely magical. But in, in a sense, all poetry does this. And good writing should invoke the new, using the particularity of that author's language, the context, the world that he or she is inhabiting. And you are able to glimpse into something that is, yeah, that, that, that is uniquely, the unique portal, let's say, into the new creation. Whether the person is a Christian or not, that's not that important to me. And of course, if you are reading like Eliot or Sakendo, who wrote Silence, another, of course, favorite of mine, but or anybody, Wendell Berry or Hannah Coulter, you're seeing something through the lens of somebody, some character. And, and through that person, you can see the world differently. And you're engaging in the sanctified imagination. And so I, I think especially coming out of trauma, like, like we have been uh, through, through the pandemic. And as I, for me, as we approach 20th commemoration of 9-11 mm -hmm. and so forth, I, after 9-11, Elliot's words were indispensable to me. Words of reality, they anchored me. When you're traumatized, you disassociate things and you're not quite sure you're in this sort of a labyrinth. You, you don't know where you are. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Elliot's mm -hmm. words, and it's because he was going through it. He was working his own trauma yeah, through these words, and he became my guide. But the, any good literature, I think, uh, can do that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Dante, too. I know you write about Dante as well. That idea, yeah. and I, I was talking with a student that's been working, doing an independent study with me this summer. And one of the things we that I said to him has been so important for me as I teach Dante again and again, and Eliot brings this up in Four Quartets, is we don't go alone. That that Dante could have written this long thing about a hero who fights his way to hell, through hell, and but no, he has someone all the way through, whether it's Virgil or Beatrice or whoever it is, that that we don't that we don't go alone and we have these lovely guides. I think another thing, and I know we're, we're, we're running out of our time, but uh, for me, I think the other thing that's really key in what you're saying too is 
we're living in a time where people are perhaps finally, hopefully, becoming more interested in other perspectives outside of their own. I, I know for me, reading about your process in, in the way that you have to, literally your process of breaking, grinding things and all of that, and how that's central to even what you're thinking about the work that you produce, that the process and the product are perhaps equally, or perhaps the process even more yeah. important. Yeah. But I, I know for me, having lived in Japan in the eighties, my first kind of rethinking of the Bible through non-Western eyes was because we were friends with such Watanabe, whose oh, yeah, art yeah. is very different than you. And yet you all both come out of these different kinds of Japanese culture that are still also mm -hmm. giving me new ways of seeing. And I know you never met him. I know I read your essay on him. Yeah, but I, I do own uh, several of his prints. I love Watanabe's art coming out of Minge tradition in the same way that I draw upon Nihon and is embedded in the, even the process of how he created. And, and there's such humor in those uh, prints that I think is also important and to understand the gratuitousness of, right. of God is one, one is through tears, the other is through humor. Yeah. And so I think Watanabe understood both. And so I really treasure looking at them and thinking about this man who kept on creating this, basically creator genre for himself. And I, I, I may have maybe in the process of doing the same thing because my work doesn't really fit. And mm -hmm. even my writing doesn't really fit. I think that's something that was inspired by his work. Yeah, and I feel like both of you have this very generous impulse. You compared him to uh, Frey Angelico, who I also yeah. love, but you said that he that it's a way to consider the generous affections uh, that Watanabe's uh, art encourages in the viewers. And I just felt like you could have said that about yourself. Oh. Uh, I just feel like both of you... I, and I have the own personal experience of he hosted, you know, I got to go as a teenager and wow. he explained the whole process to wow. me wow. and my siblings. We spent a whole day with him in his studio, which he really didn't need to do. That was such a lovely thing to, to invite us in as kids to sort of understand every single thing that he did. And I, I feel like the book that you've done right now, and even your earlier works too, really give us a sense of inviting you in and making art not something that's very intimidating, but really something that you can think about through every stage what was going on so that maybe we can be self-reflective self -reflective in our own practices. So I, that's just gratitude from me to you. I, I just, I think that generosity that you speak of is powerful because you actually live it out in your life and your work. So Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. I, I do think it is a kind of hospitality mm -hmm. offered to the world. And uh, when whenever that's received as a host, like Martha, it's not because you, you know, have prepared well. That's important too, but it's really about the, the, the gratuity of it from both sides. And I, I've been so blessed to know some of the responses I've always felt because I struggled with writing so much and early on growing up biculturally and not being able to write in any language. I feel like what whenever people read and respond to my work, um, it just feels miraculous to me. Mm -hmm. and, and we can have these kind of conversations, meaningful conversations. In a, in, right during the shutdown, this book came out and I've had so many, you know, plumbers <laughs> tell me, you know, how, how excited they are to finally 
be able to say I'm a Kintsugi plumber. And, and these things are just so remarkable to me. So I, I really appreciate that. And I think as you think in your larger kinds of thinking about culture care and about the mm-hmm. ways we can stop being at odds and come together, I mean, yeah. This idea of hospitality and making, and there's so many, I think, positive directions that that really give us ways to not feel as stuck. At least that's how I feel about it. And we face these distressful conditions every day in front of us. We see it in the news, we see it in our lives. So it's not as if you can loop yourself out of that, but facing the very darkness and scarcity around us we can, if we understand the gratuitous nature of creation and the reality of abundance uh, that Jesus keeps invoking in his messages, that I, I think we as a community follower of the way, we, we can really um, begin to co-labor and co-create into that assumption of abundance rather than just respond in our survival game. And I think that's what we are called to do, actually. And we we are invited into that. And there's a feast awaiting for us. And as we talked about, we we can relax a little bit and take that all in and and then start to make something out of it. Yeah. Chilling with Jesus. I think that's what they're going to call this podcast. (laughs) Two last things. First of all, you you mentioned Ellen Davis earlier, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the project you're doing with her and then any other projects you're talking about, and then I'll ask you one last thing. Yeah, so I do have an exhibit coming up in New York, several exhibits actually this fall, and it's called, it's in a place called Highline 9, this beautiful setting where Hudson Yards, you know, this, this spectacle that's there. There's a little gallery that I'll be exhibiting in, in September and December. And then with Ellen, we have been on this journey now for three years or more of the Psalms, and we're completing a third year of a conference based on the Psalms that we worked on together. She translated, painted, and several other artists involved, dancers and so forth, and their chapel choir. And it, it has become, it reminded me of what you said earlier about being, feeling like we're fragmented today and feeling like we can't complete the work. We, we just had this meeting today over Zoom and we decided maybe it's better to be honest and to show the process more, to say that we're, in our third last year, supposedly for this conference is um, the work that I'm doing at Adam will continue because I'm doing one psalm per month, fairly large canvases, 48 by 48 inches. So it's going to take me 14 years to get through. And Ellen is translating all of the Psalms, which she hopes to do ahead of 14 years. But So it's going to take a while. And I intentionally wanted to do something that would be impossible for me to control. And also it's beyond me and yet possible, that kind of a thing. And Ellen was very gracious to help me understand the Hebrew text in a way that is more driven by poetry, which is how I respond to scripture anyways. So she said, I can try to translate these more nuanced way or amplify certain areas. And so she's been doing that. And one of my fellows, Julia Hendrickson, who's a visual artist as well, well as a spoken word artist, 
has been recording the Psalms by reading them. And I play it here every morning to start the day. And then I work on my Psalm piece. And so we've been doing that for the last three and a half years. Wow. I, I can't wait to the, when they start to be available because yeah, yeah. it sounds really powerful. I also think it's very countercultural, though, to do the kind of slow art that you're known yeah. for, right? That there's joy in the waiting. I, I, I wondered if we could close you you in the book with a beautiful benediction. Yes, yes. Uh, and I wonder if you would just read that for Absolutely. Uh, the book. Yeah. yeah, no, that would be great. And we'll end with your own lovely words of blessing. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking that. I love reading this. I wrote this benediction at the end of the book. It summarizes everything I write about. It's something that is consolidation, the stilling of what I wrote. So after this benediction, you don't even have to read the book, you know. <laughs> well, we still want them to read the book. <laughs> but it's generative. It opens up. It's yeah. called Benediction for Makers. Yes. Let us remember that we are sons and daughters of God, the only true artist of the kingdom of abundance. We are God's heirs, princesses, and princes of this infinite land beyond the sea where heaven will kiss the earth. May we steward well what the creator king has given us and accept God's invitation to sanctify our imagination and creativity, even as we labor hard on this side of eternity. May our art, what we make, be multiplied into the new creation. May our poems, music, and dance be acceptable offerings for the cosmic wedding to come. May our sandcastles, created in faith, be turned into permanent grand mansions in which we will celebrate the great banquet of the table. Let us come and eat and drink at the supper of the Lamb now, so that we might be empowered by this meal to go into the world to create and to make, and return to share what we have learned on this journey toward the new. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Fujimura awesome. Sensei. And uh, for our listeners, please remember Makato Fujimura, Art Plus Faith, available at any good bookstore now mm -hmm. and online. I really recommend it. And I really recommend you check out Mr. Fujimura's art as well on his website. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Reform Journal podcast. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Reform Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, share this podcast, and until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you.